Welcome Wanderers! I have finished my annual marathon of the Lord of the Rings movies and I have some new insights to share with you. These insights are things that I'm noticing for the first time, even after more than 30 viewings. Or I may even compare them with the Rings of Power. I left you last time about halfway through the Two Towers, so we'll pick up there and then head on to the Return of the King. Again, only the extended editions. As a reminder, these movies are available on Amazon Prime, so if you'd like to start a free trial of Amazon Prime Video, Use the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get to wandering. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Let's start about two hours and ten minutes into the Two Towers. Right after Elrond tells Arwen of her impending doom, there's a shot of him standing in front of a tapestry. And what's on the tapestry? A golden tree on the left with an image of the sun, and the silver tree on the right with an image of the moon. Yes, these are the two trees of Valinor which were a main light source during the First Age and from which the sun and moon were created. A few minutes later, Elrond and Galadriel have this sort of long-distance phone call using their minds. Telepathic communication is a possibility in Middle-earth, although it was extremely rare. In a chapter called Mind Pictures in the book The Nature of Middle-earth, editor Carl Hostetter provides us with a note from Tolkien on how telepathic communication takes place in Middle-earth. Yes, we're getting deep, but remember, not all those who wander are lost, and I won't let you get lost. Okay, here's some extracts from what Tolkien had to say. The elves, quote, held that a superior mind by nature, or one exerting itself to its full in some extremity of need, could communicate a desired vision direct to another mind. This other mind could then interpret the visions, but Tolkien doesn't give any clues as to his intended proximity, if needed, to communicate these mind pictures. However, quote, to receive them from another human being required a special urgency of occasion and a close connection of kinship, anxiety, or love between the two minds. So notice the limits to this communication. A naturally superior mind, extreme need or urgency, and a strong relationship between the two minds seems like the perfect combination for Galadriel to communicate with Elrond. Her mind was superior, she having been older, wiser, and also having seen the light of the two trees. The greater need was the last-ditch effort to defend against Sauron, or as displayed in the movie, Elrond to reforge the sword so that Aragorn could reclaim the throne. And the strong relationship, Elrond and Galadriel had been friends for like 5,000 years at this point, plus she was his mother-in-law. And notice an important detail in the telepathic communication. It's one way. So Galadriel does all the talking, while Elrond doesn't say a word back. Now, the cynical viewer is likely saying, well, why didn't they communicate like that all the time? It's because of the limitations, particularly great need and great effort of a superior mind. Thus, it couldn't happen all the time. Yet, also, we see this effect working in evil ways. Those who look into the Palantir, like Saruman, Pippin, Aragorn, and especially Denethor, become subject to whatever despairing and fear-filled mind pictures Sauron puts into their heads. The added bonus is that because of the Palantir, the communication is more two-way rather than one. But still, Sauron's superior mind, 
yes, even over Saruman, placed much fear in their hearts. During that conversation with Elrond, Galadriel says that Sauron's goal is to dominate all life, quote, even unto the ending of the world. What is the ending of the world in Middle-earth? I love Robert Foster's description of what Tolkien meant by the ending of the world, which you can find in his book, The Complete Guide to Middle-earth. Robert Foster has this to say, quote, The culmination of the world. The true end will not be a termination, but a triumph. Evil will be defeated in the last battle. The day of doom will occur, Arda will be healed of its wounds, and the world will display the perfect realization of the Ayulindale. What that means is that in the end, evil will be defeated by good, and all evils or marrings on the world will be healed, and the world will be made perfect, as was envisioned when the Valar, the powers that govern the world, sang the songs that created the world in the first place. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense. So to better understand the end, I recommend learning about the beginning, and go back to episode 1 of this podcast to hear about that. Moving on, after Faramir informs Frodo of Boromir's death, he has a couple of flashbacks. Let's examine those for a second. First, we see Faramir finding Boromir's boat. That happened on February the 29th, four days after the Fellowship parted. Then we see Boromir and Faramir celebrating after retaking Osgiliath, and their father Denethor tells Boromir, that Elrond has called a meeting. That's different from the book, for in the chapter called The Council of Elrond, Elrond says to all gathered, including Boromir, quote, That is the purpose for which you are called hither. Called, I say, though I have not called you to me, strangers from distant lands, you have come and are here met in this very nick of time, by chance as it may seem. Ah, there's that theme of chance again almost as if more powerful players were orchestrating the defense of the free peoples of Middle-earth. Moving on, Treebeard the Ent says that the Ents haven't met in an Entmoot for an age. Wow, how many times can you say Ent in one sentence? But that got me wondering, when was the last Entmoot? And sorry to disappoint, as of yet, I haven't found a good answer for you. Suffice to say that Entmoots are very rare indeed. Later on, during the Entmoot, there's a wide shot and the Ents are swaying in unison which makes sense because their language was like the chanting of music, which, quote, Pippin found the sound very pleasant to listen to at first. And when Pippin is convincing Treebeard to turn around and march past Isengard, you'll notice he doesn't have his leaf clasp from Lothlorien, because he intentionally dropped it on the trail for Aragorn to find, and he hasn't yet met up with Aragorn to retrieve the brooch. Speaking of Aragorn, I love his face after Eowyn confesses that she loves him and doesn't want to be parted from him, he turns around and faces Legolas and Gimli, then he kind of gives this look of, sheesh, girls, am I right? I think it's funny. Later on, Aragorn comforts Haleth, son of Hama, by saying, quote, there is always hope. Again, there's that connection of Aragorn with the theme of hope, which, if you listened carefully, you would have heard a lot of that theme while Elrond and Arwen were talking earlier. Anyway, that kid, Haleth, son of Hama, gets another minute of screen time that I hadn't noticed before. He's standing next to the old man who accidentally shoots the orc with an arrow. After that scene, I always say in my head, one down, 9,999 to go. In the last March of the Ents, there's a landscape shot of all the Ents marching towards Isengard. It's a small detail, but you can see two little hobbit figures hanging on to Treebeard as they march down. You can see them again when the floodwaters are washing out Isengard. They're right in the middle of the screen, but kind of hard to see, especially when the flaming Ent jumps into the flood. But they're there, complete with Lothlorien cloaks shaking in the wind. After Theoden and Aragorn ride out to meet the orcs, Theoden is shouting, Victory! I notice there's some small, embedded, but colored jewels on his helmet. 
and I wondered if those jewels correspond in color to the flags behind his throne back at Edoras. There's some colored banners behind his throne, which I assume represent the different marks or regions of Rohan. And I'm curious to know if the colors and order of the banners matches the jewels in Theoden's helmet. Maybe someone a little more eagle-eyed could figure that out for me. That's a wrap on new insights from the Two Towers. On to Return of the King right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The opening sequence of Return of the King focuses on how Smeagol found the ring and became Golem. There's a few interesting things to note in this sequence. First, Smeagol is handling a worm, which he hooks as a bait for fish. This echoes back to the crossing of the Dead Marshes in the Two Towers, when Golem was so famished that he ate a worm. This shows the depravity to which he has fallen, so desperate now that he eats worms instead of using them to catch fish. Also, Smeagol bites Deagle's finger, a clear foreshadowing of when he will bite Frodo's finger at the end of the movie. And lastly, my son pointed this out to me, but in the final scene of the Smeagol to Golem transformation, Smeagol is holding the ring. His eyes, which are normal-sized, get cloudy, he closes them, and when he opens them again, they are the large eyes that we usually see on Golem. Thus, the transformation is complete. Maybe I have the Second Age of Middle-earth on my mind too much, but when Eowyn shares her dream with Aragorn, it reminds me of the drowning of Numenor. She sees a great wave that floods the land, the abyss below her is utter darkness, like the great chasm into which Numenor fell, even taking the physical form of Sauron with it. Maybe that's a stretch, but go listen to episode 38 again and let me know what you think. Throughout the whole Palantir scene, lots of people are making noise. Pippin, Merry, Gandalf, Aragorn all yell at different times. But who is sleeping through it all? Gimli the dwarf. Maybe he drank too much in his drinking game with Legolas. By the way, that drinking game doesn't make a lot of sense because a key plot point in The Hobbit is that the guardkeeper of the dwarves got drunk and fell asleep. Hence, Bilbo could steal his keys. But I digress. Let's go back to Gandalf, who rides through Minas Tirith. At about minute 43, you can see a small statue in an alcove built into the wall of the building. This detail was also used in Rings of Power, when Elendil is explaining to Galadriel that some in Numenor still are faithful to the Eldar and you can see their language written around the city. A tight connection for Rings of Power. Pippin lights the beacon of Minas Tirith, and there's the wonderful scene of seeing all the beacons being lit. The last one, which Aragorn sees and then takes off running, that last beacon stood near the final resting place of Aragorn's forefather, Elendil. That was the hill Halifidian, and there's some great tales that happen on that hill, 
especially the oath that bound Gondor and Rohan together in perpetual friendship. Check out episode 69 for that tale. Have you had enough references to the two trees of Valinor, and the sun and the moon that came from them? Well, too bad. I have one more for you. When Merry and Faramir are talking in the hallway about Merry's new Tower Guard livery, in the background you can see some hanging banners. Both are black and silver, it seems to me, but there's a clear image of the moon on one and the sun on another, with images of trees beneath them. Okay, that's it. No more references to the two trees. But now that I think about it, there's at least one clear reference to the two trees in each of the three movies. Nice work, Peter Jackson. Before we leave Minas Tirith, I find it ironic that Aragorn devises a plan to, as he says, quote, keep Sauron blind to all else that moves. Ironic, because Sauron's symbol is the eye, the all-seeing eye from which none can escape. Let's pop over to Frodo and Sam. While Sam is climbing the tower of Kirithungal, there's a few more orcs still alive, so the sword, Sting, shines blue in Sam's hand. I'm not sure how close orcs have to be, because when he first walks in, Sting is not shining, but by the time he gets to the top of the stairs, it is. And after he sticks the last orc in the tower, Sting is no longer blue. And poor Sam, he's carried his pots and pans through all sorts of dangers. But when he and Frodo throw their orc armor into the pit in Mordor, the last items to be thrown in? Sam's pots and pans. Well, spoiler alert, the ring is destroyed and the king returns. Minas Tirith, usually colored only in black and white and preparing for war, is now preparing for the coronation of its king. Colored banners hang from the windows and flagpoles. In almost the final scenes, Frodo is writing in his book, and behind him on the wall hangs Sting. I need to go back and see if that was on the wall when Bilbo owned Bag End. And for the last detail that I hadn't seen before, it's fitting, given so many wide landscape shots that I've taken for granted, and yet hadn't noticed the little hobbit figures before. For the last detail, I give you the Grey Havens. At 3 hours and 59 minutes, the last ship is leaving its moorings and three small hobbit figures, clad in Lothlorien cloaks, watch the ship leave the havens. And that's the end of my new insights from my latest annual viewing of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. Except I have one more. Apples! I don't know why, but apples get a lot of screen time across all three movies, from Pippin complaining about second breakfast, to the trail leading to Saruman's storehouse, to a bushel in a wagon in Rohan. Apples are everywhere. And I don't know why. Maybe apples are Peter Jackson's favorite fruit. But if so, why didn't he bite an apple during his cameo in Brie? I don't know. But there's something comforting about apples all along the journey through Middle-earth. Thanks for wandering Middle-earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? 
Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.